You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Bible this morning, there are some few Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those, reach over a neighbor, get one, follow along. We're also going to have it on the screen. You probably also have a smart device in your pocket that you could use, uh, etc. So once again, it's Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And when you get there, if you are willing and able, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet in the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off until Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is uh, Ty Gaston, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church, and uh, I'm excited to bring the word uh, to you this morning. Uh, Like Eric said, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Exodus. Um, And here we kind of reach the pinnacle of this book being the the giving of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And so uh, we have a lot of work to do this morning. I'm going to do everything I can uh, to get us out on time. Um, but I have the mic and I make no promises. So uh, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump right in. If you would, would you bow your heads? Father God, we come before you and we are so grateful for your word. Your word is what anchors us. Your word is as sweet as honey. Your word is where we find life. And so, God, as we approach your word, would you give us reverence? 
Would you allow our hearts to bow before it so that way we can submit to it, obey it, and in doing so, worship you? God, you gave of your life so that we would follow you. And so, God, would you, by the power of your spirit, incline us to do that? And so, God, where we have fears, anxieties, worries, changes, where we have all of those things that need to just be different, we ask that you would, you would give us the power to do so. God, we ask that you would reach your hand down in our, in our lives where we sit right now and rescue us from the fire that we are in. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So this week is the most recognized holiday celebrating America each year. Uh, billions of dollars will be spent on fireworks, on food, on celebrations. Kids are going to have bottle rocket wars and put firecrackers in anthills and watch it do stuff. All kinds of things that they're not going to, they should not do. And things that are dangerous and people get hurt. But it's during this time that we will celebrate this great country that we live in and uh, this freedom that we have And we celebrate this day because on July 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress unanimously adopted the Declaration of Independence to announce uh, the colony's separation from the Kingdom of Great Britain. After years of wrong impositions by the Kingdom of Britain, the people um, that would soon make up America refused to be oppressed by what they would call ridiculous laws. Genuinely, the desire was to break free, break free from the laws of Britain and embrace their own right to make their own laws. It was out of this Renaissance period that self-direction, uh, self-determination flourished. It's to this day that this spirit still lives on. Generally speaking, uh, and this is not a bad thing, but generally speaking, we don't like to be oppressed. We don't like things to be imposed on us. Uh, however, There is an undertone that swings with this sword of proverbial freedom, and that's that we don't like authority at all. And so on the one hand, it's okay to say I don't like to be oppressed. On the other hand, it's it's another thing to say I don't like authority, period. Those are two different sides of the same sword. We see this even in our children. If you've been around a child long enough, you will take quick notice that no is the preferred answer, or I don't want to is the preferred answer, or I hate you if they're old enough is the preferred answer. And it, all you have to do is just take something, even something bad that's in a child's hand, you, like scissors, you take it from them and you, you, know, you can count to three and there's a catastrophic meltdown. It's just they don't like from their very nature to be controlled. They don't like to be what they would say is oppressed. In their very limited scope, you taking their toy away is a form of oppression, even though it's for their good. I could say adults mature and then get better, but I think we all know that that isn't true. Uh, Even currently right now in our uh, political and culture our political culture, you see that there are arguments and culture wars that are happening with what you can tell me to do and what you cannot tell me to do. The idea is that we do not like rules being imposed on us. We view them as oppressing. For us, imposed laws equals lack of freedom. And this is because when we're left to our own devices, we will view ourselves as the rule makers, as the lawmakers. No one else. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do or impose their will, their beliefs, or their rights on to me. That is the general thought. We believe that we are kings and queens of the land and our kingdom rules are for us to decide. We're in a, uh, we're in a church this morning, so it's no secret where I'm going with this. 
But the truth is, is that when we want to think that we're in control, it comes to a screeching halt because we realize that we're not. We realize that we're not the ones that make the rules and that God is. We've been a series for the last six months where God has consistently flexed that he is the king, he is the judge, and he, what, what he will add today, he is the lawmaker. We are in his kingdom. He is not in ours. He rules, uh, his rules are different than our kind of rules. His rules don't just cause restraint, but they also cause flourishing. His rules in restraining us from ourselves allow us to flourish with one another. His rules cause the greatest freedom that we could ever experience. And no, that kind of freedom does not mean autonomy. It doesn't mean you just get to do whatever you want. That freedom, uh, his freedom restrains us from the damage that we could do if left all alone and allows us to be who we were created to be, and that's namely children of God. I, I, think, of, like, I think about whenever I go on vacation, my children are both restrained and have freedom. So they're restrained in that they don't get to dictate where we go, they don't get to dictate what they want to do, but you know what they're also not burdened with? The cost, the planning, the organizing, the driving, they're, they're not burdened with any of those. They have the freedom to just be who they are within the confounds or the boundaries of that little micro kingdom that we created for them. So there's this idea of restraint and freedom being the most loving way to look at this. In fact, this is actually a really deep love for us because the real judgment from God would be him giving us over to complete autonomy. Tom, Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said it this way, the greatest judgment God lays upon a man in this life is to let him sin without control. The boundaries of God's kingdom that he sets versus the kingdom of man that we set allows us to flourish with our creator and each other. So as we look into the text this morning, I want us to think about this paradigm between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. My hope for us this morning is that you would walk away with three things. One, that we ought to love and worship God supremely, that, and, and that that love should cause a deep love for one another, and then we find our true rest in the love of Christ. Okay, told you we got a lot of work. Let's jump in at uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So right out of the gate, God makes no mistakes who is speaking. He doesn't send Moses. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send any kind of other messenger. He comes out of the gate and speaks for the first time to the, the people of Israel, his people, his group, his children. He's speaking to them directly. He wants it to be heard. And he wants to make it impossible that they're, that they're being deceived of any kind. They just spent a, a large amount of time, years and years and years, with the Egyptians that had their own magicians that could conjure up their own spirits, that could conjure up their own tricks. God wanted to be known, there is no other like me. I am set apart. I am holy. When I arrive on the scene, you know every single bit of it. And we'll look at some of those visual and audio things that happen in that moment. But what's unmistakable is that God is the one that's speaking. 
And this stood in direct opposition to the over 60 gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Their gods never manifested themselves, let alone spoke to them directly. The God of the Bible was completely other and set apart. His kingdom was imminent and directly stood against any efforts to rule it by anyone else or any other god. And our bin, just like the Egyptians, is to forget who the true king is and try to assume the throne ourselves. But the Bible shows us time and time again that God will not allow it. And we can be upset about the rules of the kingdom, but the one thing that we don't get to do is decide to change or amend them. Because the, the point is on that God said it. It didn't matter what the rule is. It doesn't matter if we think the rule is unfair or unjust. It's irrelevant because God, the supreme creator of the universe, was the one that said it. Whatever he speaks, regardless of what we think, is the rule. And we don't sit on a throne or have any kind of authority to say, no, you're wrong. Because the minute we do that is the minute that we fail, the minute we stop flourishing, and the minute that we fall into catastrophe. The minute that the, relate, the relationship paradigm between a parent and a child goes off the rails is when the child decides, no, I can say what to do. Could you imagine what would happen if you're driving on the road and your child, your five-year-old, decides to unbuckle their car seat and reach up and grab the steering wheel while you're driving? Could you imagine what would happen? I mean, chaos. That's what happens when we try to amend or change God's rules. But when God introduced himself as set apart, he doesn't just introduce himself as a set apart king or set apart God, transcend above the universe and then walk off into the sunset. He doesn't do that. He introduced himself in a very specific way. And I think it's important because it'll point to Christ. Verse number two, he said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he isn't just a king. He's the king that rescued you. God frees us by his grace, gives us new life, and then calls us to obedience to his words. Because Yahweh is their God who has brought them out of Egypt, they are to live for his glory by following his commands. And we ought to do God's will as well because we have been saved if you have trust in Christ. We work from our salvation. We don't earn it. We don't work to it. The important distinction here is that God's salvation started before he gave any commands. Notice that God did not start with the Ten Commandments, give them a list, say, hey, if you follow these rules, then maybe I'll let you out of Egypt. No, he rescued them out of Egypt and then gave them commands. He showed that he loved them and then asked them to follow them. He didn't say, hey, you know what? Here's Ten Commandments. If you get seven, I'll get you out of Egypt, but you're kind of on your own at that point. If you get nine, I'll get you up to the Red Sea, but that's kind of it. If you get all ten, I'll get you through the Red Sea, and we'll, we'll talk about what happens after that. He didn't do that. He rescued them, regardless of whether or not they were worth it, and just brought them and made them his children brought them out of slavery, rescued them, made them as children, and then said, this is what it looks like to walk in freedom, and then gives them the Ten Commandments. He isn't just the king that demands obedience, but he is the God that rescues his people. The kingdom, uh, the kingdom rules that he's going to put in place that we're going to look at this morning allow for the reality of that rescuing to remain intact. He's going to set the boundaries of his kingdom that will allow for the greatest joy and give him the greatest glory. Because we don't have time to dive deep into every single one of these commandments, we're going to look at them in tables. If I had my way, 
personally, I would go through them each, uh, each commandment each week. I, that's my own preference. We don't have time to do that. We want to finish Exodus in a year. So that being said, we're going to look at them in tables. We're going to break them up. And so the first four, hang on the command to love God. Think of this as a vertical relationship between you and God. The second six, hang on the command to love other people. So horizontal. It first starts with the first four, ends with the second six. In other words, the first four absolutely inform the last six. You have to keep the first four or the last six will not happen. All right, let's look at it. Verse number three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the Lord your God, uh, the Lord your God's name in vain, uh, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless for uh, who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And that leads me to my first point, which is we abide in God's kingdom by rejecting false kings and worshiping the true king. So God, in giving these direct commands to his people, was his deconstruction of what they did know, which is the kingdom of man in, uh, underneath Pharaoh, and reconstructing what they needed, which is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of man, we see in uh, the first commandment, desires to, cre- the first and second commandment, desires to create for itself other gods that are tangible and self-made. And this, this stood in direct opposition to what the Egyptian, Egyptians did. So you've got to think about the Ten Commandments in context. God is writing and talking to a specific people. And so he's deconstructing what they've learned and known up to this moment, which is that there are a bunch of other gods over a bunch of other things. There's a God of the sun, a God of the grass, a God of the wheat. There's all kinds of gods that they need to worship. And the truth is, is there is no other God to worship except for Yahweh. And so he's deconstructing this idea that you can create for yourself other gods out of other items because they all fail. Instead, you worship the one true God. The kingdom of God in the third commandment uses the name of God or the kingdom of man uses the name of God flippantly because he is not held in reverence. So you see this whenever Pharaoh mocked God leading up to and during the plague. So he not only hardens his heart because he doesn't think God's really going to do anything, and he also brings in his own magicians to do what Moses is doing by the power of God. And so he's using God's name in vain, making a mockery of him, using his name like it's meaningless. And that's what it looks like. And that's what these, the people of God have been 
taught underneath the kingdom of man. So when God comes to his children, his people, he's saying, do not use my name in a meaningless way. When you say my name, it must have weight to it. When you say my name, it must mean something to you. And that's as simple as when you're singing a song on a Sunday morning, when you sing to God, it should mean something. You shouldn't just simply recite the lyrics of the song. When you sing it, it must be worshipful in the heart. It should it should animate you at some level. You should love God so deeply that when you say his name, it is worshipful. The kingdom of man, in commandment number four, doesn't ever rest because it is built on consumption. It must take and take and take because the kingdom of man worships itself. Remember, Pharaoh wouldn't allow the Israelites to stop working even for two days to go and worship God. They were willing to go away, worship, and then come back. But that wasn't going to work. Pharaoh would not have it because that means the quotas would stop and his construction would stop. And so he didn't only not allow them to do that, but he also removed the materials that they needed to make the bricks. He, if you remember the story, he kept the straw away from them. Up until that moment, he had been giving uh, the mud the, and the straw. Now he took the straw and they just had the mud. They have to go get their own straw. So he made it far more difficult and also didn't allow them to have any kind of break because Pharaoh worshiped himself. But what did God say? The seventh day, you and everything you own ought to rest because God has set it aside for worship. You need a Sabbath. I need a Sabbath. We need a Sabbath. It is rooted in the creation story and it is rooted in the redemption story. Some may argue over what that day may look like, but no one should argue over the principle that we should all rest. It it doesn't matter whether you believe that it should only happen on a Sunday or that you could do it at any point that you want, break it up however you want. The point is, is that rest is integral to the creation and redemption story. We should not disregard it. And let me me say this just to the parents because I think there's there's a... certain distinction in the text that requires a little bit of attention that I, I won't give to some of the other ones. So in the portion on remembering the Sabbath, he specifically says, he names off all kinds of things, You're even, even up to your livestock. So basically like for our context, unless someone's got some cows in here, that'd be cool. But if you don't, uh, your pets, things like that. The idea when he's talking about this, is he says, your son should not work, your daughter should not work. And if I could just speak to the parents for a second, if you allow your children to dictate whether or not they engage in worship or engage in the life of the church, because you want that you want it to be, and I understand it. Listen, my children are about to get to that age where you're like, I want it to be genuine. I understand that. The truth is though, if you leave them to their own devices, they will choose themselves. It's part of the bondage of, of, our, of our will, bondage of sin. Because of sin, we will ultimately choose ourselves. It's the whole point of the Ten Commandments, that God is setting boundaries so you don't do that. The whole point of the first commandment is that you would choose God and not yourself. That's why he addresses it first, because of the bend. The bondage of the will will make you choose your own life and your own conveniences and your own preferences and your own desires. You will start to dictate the rules of the kingdom if left alone. We just heard Thomas Watson said that is the worst form of judgment. And so we cannot get to this place where we're allowing our kids, out of the sake of it being genuine, to not attend church if they're underneath our care. 
We can't get to that place because they will choose their own death unknowingly. We must be willing to be parents to step in the gap and say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will go to church. We will be in community. We will be known by others. We will serve God, worship him, know his word, sing with great joy because his salvation and his glory is worth it. And so you may not like it, but good news is I don't like it either sometimes. You may not want to do it. Congratulations. I didn't want to get up on a Sunday morning either. I wanted to sleep. But the truth is, is that God is worth it. He's worth every second. And so we ought to lead our families that way. And that includes things like the Sabbath, taking time to rest. Friends, God does not give us the freedom in his kingdom by allowing us to love him any way that we please. The Puritan, Anthony Burgess, said that by loving God any way that we please would be like the tail wagging the dog. In these commandments, God tells us how to love him appropriately. Our love for God is reflected by our obedience to his word. And the way that we love God is by putting him first. These first four commands address the deep problem of the human heart that is namely idolatry. Everyone was created to be a worshiper. Whether the, and we are created to worship God, but the truth is, is left unchecked, we'll worship something or someone. Idolatry is putting that someone or something in the place of God. It's exchanging the glory of the creator for the creation, leading to a life of moral corruption or ignorance. And these idols are not just pagan altars that we lay, lay at and bow before, but they also are in the hearts of people. It should only take a quick survey of the heart to see that these idols are everywhere. What causes, uh, my question to you would be, what causes worry in your life? What causes anxiety? What causes fear? Is it your job, your children, your spouse, lack of a spouse? What others think about you? Money, food, you name it. the, The list can just keep going on and on and on. What causes those things? What emotionally affects you? We believe And the only reason why these things would cause worry or anxiety is because we have elevated them to a place they should not be, that they ought not be. We believe that they, those idols, are the ones in power and can themselves alter the direction of our life if we don't bow to them. And the the truth is, is that is only an illusion and something that the enemy wants you to believe. Because the truth is, is that we have to see our idols for what they are, and that's that they overpromise and underdeliver. And after seeing and having this revealed to us, we need to be willing to crush those idols at the altar of God and worship him instead. The way we worship God properly is by rejecting any resemblance of a false king and worshiping our true king. But again, God doesn't just assert, assert himself as a king and walks, walks off, but as we see in the second table of the commandments, 6 through 10, he also gives us rules that allow us to flourish amongst one another. Verse number 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his or, uh, or his ox or his donkey or anything that, you're, uh, that is your neighbor's. Which leads me to point number two. We abide in God's kingdom by rejecting our rules and obeying God's rules. 
So verse 12 is uh, shamelessly the only, only text that we quote to our kids, uh, which is to obey, honor your father and mother. Uh, we, we say, all right, guys, remember what the Bible says. You have to honor your mommy and daddy or you will not live long. It's the rule. Just kidding. We don't say that, but, uh, but it's in my heart at all times. So our ex- the exclusive worship of God as our king continues to mark who we are as believers. In addition, our devotion to God will keep us from breaking the second table of commandments, the last, these last six. Since underneath every single sin is idolatry, our obedience to the vertical commands will directly affect our obedience to the horizontal commands. We will not scorn parents, murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet if God is our ultimate treasure, whom we honor with our lives and our lips. These rules for engaging one another are not just for restraint, but like we said earlier, there's also freedom. There's also flourishing. That when we obey these commands, it allows for the greatest of scenarios in the community of the church. Again, these serve as a deconstruction of what they've known, the kingdom of man, and a reconstruction of what they needed to know, which is the kingdom of God. So in commandment number five, it says this, the kingdom of man would disregard parents and tell you that you can make decisions and live your life apart from them. So the kingdom of man seeks to divide the household and break up the family unit. This can be nothing short of the work of the enemy. The kingdom of God, however, calls us to give proper weight and honor to those that are in authority above us. So why does this matter and why does this affect your life? Why does it affect how long you will live in the days of the land that the Lord has given you? Because in this time, uh, in, in that time and our time, not honoring your parents or the authorities above you could lead to your own oppression, as in, if you don't obey them, they could just tighten the wrench on you. Or if you, um, if you disregard them altogether, then you could walk into your own moral corruption and let go of your morals. Think prodigal son where he disregarded and did not honor his father and chose and wished that his father would be dead so he could get the inheritance and then go off and do his own thing. And what did that lead to? Moral corruption and squandering. Think Absalom who usurped his father's kingdom because of, his, because of not honoring his dad. Noah's sons where Noah stepped off the ark and got drunk and instead of doing what he could to pres- their sons doing what he could to preserve Noah they mocked him and it was bad from them from that point on honoring and loving those in authority above you allows for the greatest of humility and growth because the truth is is that if you're willing to submit to authority uh, here on earth you're willing to submit to God they're a direct reflection of one another submitting to God means submitting to the authorities above you that's what that looks like you see this, this theme all throughout scripture. God puts, places people above you, whether it's parents, whether it's your bosses, whether it's governments, God places people above you so that you would walk in humility and learn what it means to submit. Submit means that it's not fun. Submit means that you don't want to do it. Submit means that it's against your will and you're, you have to bend your will. That's submission. And so for us, this is a direct reflection of who we are in Christ. The next commandment, number six, 
The kingdom of man says that you can do whatever you, uh, whatever you want, even if that means taking the life of another person. So we see this in Pharaoh being willing to take as many lives as he needed to accomplish his construction plans. Cain took the life of Abel. We, stand in the kingdom of God, stand opposed to the kingdom of man that would take any life because in the kingdom of God, the only giver of life is God. He's the giver and the taker of life, and we do not stand in a place where we can uh, make any kind of changes to what he would say. Jesus even deepened this command by saying anger was equal to this kind of murder in the heart. Because Jesus also says later on in the, in the Gospels when he's talking about this, he says that it's out of the heart that come the actions. And so if you have anger and hatred in your heart, then eventually it will lead to something you don't want to do. It will lead to breaking commandments. The kingdom of man also says that you can do whatever, um, the kingdom of man says that any person is yours for the taking, regardless of whether or not they are your spouse. So this is another direct attack from the enemy that seeks to destroy the family unit. And I've seen generations of families affected by this. I've been in ministry a a while now, over a decade, and I've seen time after time families that refuse to worship the Lord, things that happen in their life eventually work their way into the lives of of their children and then work their ways into the lives of their children and their children until someone is willing to step in the gap and say, no more, we will worship the Lord. We will do what's right. God will direct our path. God will will set our boundaries and we will operate in gospel freedom within those boundaries that God has set. That is when those cycles stop. Cycles stop when people start caring about God and then start caring and then in turn start caring about other people, including their families. And when they do that, they flourish and the cycle of sin is broken. We see this in the Old Testament, where Pharaoh takes women as concubines and as slaves, David takes Bathsheba. In the kingdom of God, this command promotes purity, specifically sexual purity. Your willingness to devote yourself to your spouse, or if you are single, to purity, is a direct reflection of your devotion to the God of the universe. The kingdom of man takes that which does not belong to them, so it steals this can, this can manifest itself in a number of different ways. I mean, you even see this in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life that they were told not to eat was not theirs. That was God. He said not to do it. What did they do? They took it because they felt like we deserved it or they wanted to be like God. Traditionally, uh, a lot of people summarize, or I'm sorry, the kingdom of God reminds us Uh, of what God has graciously given us. Rather than stealing, we should have thankful hearts and rejoice in what God has provided for us. We should be good stewards over what God provides for us. That is what it means to be in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man steals and takes what they want. The kingdom of God stewards and rejoices in what God has given. We recognize that he is our provider. The kingdom of man is dishonest about their lives and the others to and others to get what they want. So you see this in Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted to look good in front of everyone else and also preserve money for themselves in the New Testament. What ends up happening is they lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead immediately. This is not Old Testament. This is New Testament stories. 
You see this in the enemy when he's talking to Christ in the desert. He's offering things he has no business offering to Christ. You see this in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's offering things to Adam and Eve that he has no business offering. Traditionally, a lot of people summarize this command by saying, you shall not lie. And while that is true, that that kind of gets the point. It's really connected to the idea of legal testimony and witness. So rather than providing false testimony, the individual should give truthful and honest testimony. So what this means is that it's not just lying. It's making sure you're telling the full truth about someone or something. It's not telling half-truths. It's telling the full story. It's being an open book. It's being fully exposed. It's being willing to deal with whatever consequences are before you, even if it means at the expense of you, because you are willing to be honest. You're willing to do what is true. The bedrock of the kingdom of God is truth. And lastly, the kingdom of man is discontent with his life and desires the life of others. This is the you shall not cover it. So the enemy, the chief sinner that happens at the very beginning of the book of the Bible, his, his whole issue and his whole problem and why he, why he was cast out of heaven was because he coveted what God had. He wanted to be God. He wanted to sit on the throne. He wanted what was not his. And so he convinced Adam and Eve to do the same thing, to be like God. It was... God's holding out on you, and you should be afforded this opportunity because you've been made in his image and likeness, right? You should be able to get the things that he gets. And instead, that caused the fall of man. So instead of having a thankful heart, those that covet desire what others have. Or uh, another way of saying it, they desire what others are. They want to be them. If you covet, you want to be another person. The truth is, is that God gives us these rules, not only to restrain us, but to flourish in our life with one another. Breaking any of these commandments on their own is enough to break friendships, relationships, and split families. But by rejecting them altogether, it leads to a whole kind of catastrophe. By rejecting our own rules in the kingdom of man and aligning with God rules, we get to abide in his kingdom where true peace and joy reside. Now, God is, God is going to, in these next couple of verses, he's going to put on display his power and his majesty and show why it's incredibly important that his people pay attention. Verses number 18 through 21 says this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be, set, uh, may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this this display of thunder, of lightning, of smoke, of sounds, of God's loud voice like a loud trumpet. This is all throughout scripture denoting God's presence. You see it in the book of Revelation as well. When God shows up, it's loud, it's booming, it's thunderous. There's lots of lightning, there's fire, there's smoke. There's a, it is a big deal when God walks into the room because everything moves differently. Everything is shaped differently. And if you're anything like me, 
I don't know if you noticed, but God did not comfort them in that moment when they were afraid. God did not say, oh, sorry, let me pull back. Not at all. When God moves into the room and he wants you to know that he's present, he will make sure that you are aware of it. And he would not pull back lest you misunderstand him or disregard him. Moses also came and said, do not fear for God has come to test you, that your fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. I I love how he begins, while God, the father, did not come back and say, don't worry, you don't have to be afraid. Moses did as an intermediary between God and the people said, do not fear. God has come before you for your good. That's a direct picture of Christ when he's calling his disciples and they realize who he is and they fall on their face. Peter specifically falls on his face and says he's not worthy. And what does Christ say? Do not fear. Do not fear. Lift your face. It's a direct connection as Moses uh, looking and projecting for, for the Christ to come. But if you're anything like me, the, the idea that you would not sin is an impossibility. And the truth is, is that sin is deep within us. It's not just the actions that we do, but it's the essence of who we are. It has affected our very nature. Our bend, if left alone, will be to disobey and disregard God, make our own rules and create our own kingdom. That's the problem that we're facing here at this moment is that the kingdom of man has been established and God is having to tear it all down and reconstruct the kingdom of God because it's left to its own devices, to its own will. So the truth is, is that when we talk about, if we see God, then maybe we won't sin. But the truth of us, the truth is, is a lot of us in this room have seen God in that we have believed in him, we submit underneath his lordship, but we still find ourselves sinning. And that's because the law was meant to serve as a spiritual MRI of sorts that shows you exactly what's going wrong. It's meant to show you every single thing that is an issue inside of you that is not made like God, that is not like him. It's meant to show you that you desperately need God. You need him to do something. Because if if left either to your own devices or even alone to the Ten Commandments, we're failing. We will have a hard time just keeping the first one, which is there's no other God. And so we have to be willing to look to God in this moment and say, God, I, I understand that you showed up to me in, in hopes that I wouldn't sin, but the truth is, is I keep doing it. And this is what leads me to my third point, which is the, the greatest point. We abide in God's kingdom by rejecting self-determination and receiving Christ's salvation. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter, uh, uh, turn to chapter five, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. I'll read it. It'll also be on the screen behind me. It says, do not think, this is Jesus talking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes Uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom uh, of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will also be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, if God is the same yesterday, uh, today, and forever, then this makes total sense. God's not going to create rules, realize that maybe he was a little bit too harsh, and then pull off of them, and then give us a new, some new grace rules. That's not what he does. But instead, God keeps them because he's the same. And while, that may, while the idea of God changing may seem silly, this thought is rampant among the church because we see time and time again where people say the Old Testament is irrelevant because the New Testament is here. We can, we can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and fully latch on to the New Testament truths. We don't have to worry about uh, this whole obedience thing. We can just live in the life of grace. And I would say that the Bible stands directly against that. I would say God himself stands directly against that. Jesus instead says that he came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, fulfill the law and the, and the prophets. In other words, Jesus's purpose was to establish the word, embody it, and fully accomplish all that was written. And after seeing that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah that the word of God talks about, we must also see that the picture of Exodus is his long-awaited kingdom. Again, this point is critical to understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. There is indeed a new kingdom and a new people. It was God's intention all along not just to give commandments to his people, but to create a new people with new hearts, new affections, and new attitudes. This exodus expectation of a people transformed by God's spirit is critically important for understanding what Jesus is saying here in this text. And the larger context of redemption is a reminder to us that we cannot dismiss Jesus's words because we think the standard is too high. We cannot dismiss the words of the, Old, of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus because we think that they're outdated. We cannot dismiss them. It is the same God yesterday, today, and forever just because they may seem like they are too difficult. It doesn't mean that we can just throw, throw them out. We cannot throw in the towel on things like not having idols, not lusting, not committing adultery, not observing the Sabbath, or not coveting. We can't just say, well, coveting is it's too hard to get rid of. I'm just going to do it. It's inevitable. So I, what are we talking about here? We can't do that. We can't throw in the towel. We cannot capitulate to the power of sin. Sin's only end is death. And so we cannot we cannot give in. We have to keep fighting. In the last phrase of verse number 20 of this passage, Jesus says that when it comes to, when it comes to being righteous, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven if you're not more righteous than that of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. Jesus is not referring to some elite club for Christians or rewards for the extra obedient. Instead, this is simply another way Jesus speaks about salvation. So Jesus demands righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that really ought to shock us because unless any of us outdo the Pharisees and the scribes, which my guess is that there's nobody in the room who has memorized the Old Testament, right? The first five books of the Bible? One book. One book. One chapter. Anyone got a chapter down? Okay, that's my point. My point is that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees had the entire Torah memorized. They externally, they were pristine. Externally, they look good. Externally, their righteousness is far beyond us. I know there's like one competitive person in here that's going to be like, oh, well, I'll show you. We'll see. 
If you memorize the book of the Bible, come talk to me. I will sit and listen to you recite it. However, this is not what Jesus is referring to. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was purely on external righteousness. But Jesus says that it's not enough to be righteous on the outside if you are not also righteous on the inside. What Jesus is demanding is not more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous deeds by, uh, by hearts filled with divine grace. In other words, Jesus is embodying the idea that for the believer, the law is, not, is no longer this third-party source telling us what to do, but it is also, because of what he's done, written on our hearts. In fact, we see the culmination of this idea that in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, for, this, uh, for our sake, he, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the work that Jesus did allows for us to partake into the kingdom of God because of him keeping the commandments, him following the law, him fulfilling it, and it allowing it to be written on our hearts so that way we have more access to it. We have the power of the spirit to allow us to obey it. This, this idea of the law being written on our hearts is found in Jeremiah 31, 33. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For the believer, the law moves from this external striving to this internal reality. Being obedient to these commands becomes all the more accessible to us because by the power of the Spirit, our hearts will be inclined to follow God. Now, what does that mean for us? Thankfully, Jesus further defines this. and The easy, the easy answer would be to go to Matthew 22 where Jesus says, all of the law and prophets hold on these two commandments that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. That's an easy one. Uh, but Jesus also defines this a little bit further in John chapter 15. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But it's, it's this idea that the first four commandments, the vertical ones, can be found in one single statement. And then the last six can, be, can also be found in one single statement. And all of these commandments are hang on the idea that we ought to abide in Christ and love one another. John 15 verses 1 through 11 says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes. Or doesn't bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Again, th think, look at that language. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. It's, it's, you don't have to do anything. I've already done it. I've already cleaned you. You're already washed. You don't have to perform. You don't have to be the prettiest vine or the prettiest branch and have the most fruit. It's irrelevant. That will come. I've already cleaned you. Abide in me. Abide in me first. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what does accepting citizenship into God's kingdom and putting him first look like? Abiding in Christ. In the same way that the branch cannot survive apart from the vine, so we cannot survive spiritually apart from Christ. It is impossible to fully keep the commandments that he's asking us to do. It's impossible to keep these horizontal commandments if we cannot keep the vertical one, if we cannot abide in Christ. We have to find our refuge, our safety inside of God and nothing else. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. Abiding in Christ leads to flourishing. This doesn't mean that you're going to get what you want, but it does mean that you will start to love what God loves. So why can Christ say, if you love God, you will love people? Why can he say that? Because if you start to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will start to love what God loves. And God loves us. God loves his people. God loves doing the right thing. So why can Jesus say that? Because if you start to love him, you will start to do what he asks. And when he, you will start to love what he loves, and he loves us. And if you love, your, if you love God, you will love your neighbor. That's why he can say that. It doesn't mean that you're going to get what you want, but it does mean that you'll start to love what God loves and cherish what he cherishes and obey the commands that he gives. And he also said at the end of this, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. And it's this idea that there is no true joy that can be found outside of Christ. You can be happy for a moment, but you'll have to lead to another moment, and you'll have to keep going, you'll have to keep striving, you'll have to, have to keep finding things to fill the void. Joy can't be had apart from Christ because everything else ends. Christ doesn't. Anything else that you strive for, whether it's career, whether it's uh, relationships, wh- you name it, devices, toys, trinkets, it doesn't really matter. Whatever you put in the place of God, it will fail, it will break, it will fade away. Christ is the only one that doesn't. That's why his joy is everlasting and long-lasting. Our joy is full and complete because Christ kept the commands of the Father on our behalf. We have true joy because the burden of the law is no longer on our hearts because of Christ's work for us. That's what it means to worship the king in his kingdom, that the burden of the law is not on you because Christ fulfilled it, but out of joy and out of admiration and to give God glory, you follow in the commandments and uh, parameters that he put up. Now, what does it mean to follow these rules? We see this in John chapter 15 as well in 12 through 17. This is, this is my commandment after you have abided in Christ that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone may lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends and if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you. These things I command to you so that way you will that so that you will love one another. Obeying the relational rules. So first of all, it starts with the vertical rules, abiding in Christ. 
Abiding in Christ allows you to be connected to the vine that causes flourishing. And out of that flourishing will bear fruit. And that fruit looks like you loving other people, loving one another. Obeying the relational rules in the kingdom of God in Exodus means loving one another deeply and supremely. What does that mean? It means, he said it in this text, laying down your life for others. And this means that you're laying down your preferences and your conveniences for the sake of others. That you, I was talking with a brother uh, here in this church the other day. We were talking about what it really means to, to live your life or lay down your life for the sake of another person. And we talked about it's this idea that you want to be vulnerable with other people, but also that you actually want them to be vulnerable back. That when you, when you go to somebody and you ask them, how are you doing? You're prepared for the good answer, which is like, I'm doing great, man. Well, that's awesome. But you're also prepared for the bad answer, which is that, I, man, things are not good at all. And that in preparation in your heart, when they give you that bad answer, you are willing to lay down your life conveniences and desires for the sake of their good. That you, when people say they want to be vulnerable, you actually want them to do it because you're actually willing to give your life for it. And we see that in what Christ did for us, that he, he ponied up and actually gave of his life for us. He showed what it was like to die for his friends. It's amazing. Obedience to God leads to the good of others. Out of obeying the commands of the Father, Christ died for the good of us. I want to leave you with a couple questions. The first one is, which kingdom are you a part of? Do you find yourself in the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you, I want to invite you into this rest of having the law written on your heart. This rest of no longer externally striving to conjure up joy, conjure up happiness, get rid of depression, get rid of anxiety, find ways to make your life better. I want you to, I want to invite you to no longer do that, but to step into the rest of God, which is Christ. I've been doing ministry a long time to know that there are people in this room that believe that they don't measure up and that God won't accept them. Saying things like, Ty, well, if you just knew what I've done, if you knew what I've done, you would understand. Friend, I don't have to know who you are. I don't have to know that you are that to know that you are that Christ welcomes you this morning into his rest if you would just believe. Not get cleaned up, not behave better. The Spirit will do that later. Remember, you are already clean if you believe. Don't worry about how filthy you think you are. If you believe in Christ, you are clean. You receive his righteousness. It is imputed to you, not because you deserve it, but because he wanted to give it. Not get cleaned up, not behave better, just believe. My plea for you is to look to Jesus who kept these commands perfectly and died for those that broke them. If you're a believer in the room, my question to you is, are, are you exhausted by the veneer of religion? Are you exhausted by the idea that you're just this rule keeper, but, but you really know who you are? That everyone looks at you like, oh, they're such a good Christian, or you try to keep up the veneer. Are you exhausted by the idea that you're not actually following God, but you're just trying to be morally upright? 
Well, I would say to you, friend, Jesus fulfilled the law so that you don't have to. You don't have to work for your salvation. You can work from it. You are already clean. God has made you that way. I'm going to close by reading from one of the famous hymns called Rock of Ages. There's two verses in there that really are powerful to me, and I want to read them in closing out. It says this, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked to thee uh, for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen.